The clock's ticking. Here's what's coming up. Operation Lamson 7-1-Teen. Outry's final flight to futility. Von Steuben skates into Valley Forge, offers to coach the Continental Army. And Turkish troops play, capture the flag with ISIS in Al-Bab. Plus, a shocking revelation as the world's first vegetarian shark is discovered using fake teeth. Those are the headlines. Now let's fluff up the news pillow and dream of facts. The news bang. A tall glass of truth served with a twist of humor. 1971. The year was 1971, and the Vietnam War raged on like a jungle fire started by an incompetent scoutmaster. North Vietnam, backed by their communist chums, were giving South Vietnam a right old thrashing. Enter General Do Sao Tri, the fighting panda, as he was known to his enemies and local zookeepers alike. Tri was helicoptering into Operation Lam Son, 719, when tragedy struck. He flew straight into a low-flying end to the war. His death dealt a blow to morale, but more so for those underneath him at the time. US support continued until 73 AD, when they decided enough was enough and boogered off home with their Bell UH-1 Iroquois between their legs. It ticked. 1778. Well, it's 1778 and the American Revolutionary War is in full swing. The Continental Army, led by George Washington, a man so American he had a state named after him, are up to their powdered wigs in trouble. Enter Prussian military officer Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben, or Fred, as his close friends never called him. Fred rocked up at Valley Forge with some radical ideas on how to improve the army's performance. His drills were said to be revolutionary, pun intended. He drilled them like they were being exercised by an ex-drill sergeant. One eyewitness, Donut Hole of Plymouth Rock, said, I didn't think I could do another push-up, but then Freddle Me Waddle made me do 50 more. The results were staggering. Within months, the Continental Army went from fumbling militia to bona fide Minutemen. Under General Washington's command, they eventually forced the British into signing the Treaty of Paris in 1793, uh, uh, 36. Uh, sometime around then anyway. And so, thanks to one man and his wooden ruler of discipline, America was born. God bless you, Fred. 2017. And we return to our sensational coverage of the Syrian Civil War, where in 2017 the Turkish armed forces known for their love of Pilates and fine cheeses, teamed up with some allies who probably didn't want to be named. They set their sights on Al-Bab, a city so dangerous even its name had an escape plan. The rebels, led by Basil Assad, or Auntie Basil as he was known behind his back, were no match for the Turkish-led forces. The Battle of Al-Bab raged on like a one-sided game of risk, played by sociopaths. In the end, it was all over bar the praying as ISIL, or Islamic State, made a hasty retreat through elaborate tunnels they had dug weeks earlier. We spoke exclusively to eyewitness Abu Hamza. It was carnage. I haven't seen such bedlam since my last wife swap party. But he declined to comment. As dawn broke over the smouldering ruins of Al-Bab McDonald's drive through the true cost became clear. Untold casualties and an entire branch of Poundland looted bare. A spokesman for ISIS lamented, we may have lost this battle, but we still have branches in Raqqa and Mosul, before being punched in the face by passing YPG fighters. 
News Bang, the only show that tells it like it is, even if it isn't. The man who'll be unravelling the meteorological tapestry for us today is none other than Shakanaka Giles. Here's a quick glimpse of what awaits us across the country. Tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a morning drizzle, like a tearful goodbye to your favourite pet goldfish. By afternoon, the sun will peek through, as if a shy child at a birthday party. Moving on to the Midlands, where it'll be a bit like a damp hanky with a chance of showers. Expect a drizzle that will make you feel like you've been licked by a thousand cats. Up north, it's going to be a bit nippy, about as cold as a polar bear's Harris. So, wrap up warm and don't forget your mittens. In Scotland, prepare for a bit of a blustery day, like a grumpy old man shaking his fist at the sky, with wind strong enough to blow a small child into next week. And finally, in Wales, it'll be a bit of a mixed bag, like a lucky dip at a village fate. Expect some sun, some rain, and perhaps a bit of hail for good measure. In summary, a bit of a soggy start, a shy sun, a weepy Midlands, a nippy north, a grumpy Scotland, and a lucky dip Wales. And that's all the weather. Nineteen seventy-one. In a sobering reminder of the Vietnam War's deadly dance, General Do Chao Tri, a formidable force, met his end in a helicopter crash during Operation Lam Son 719. The protracted conflict, a significant chapter in the Cold War, saw North Vietnam backed by communist allies and South Vietnam receiving support from the United States. The war's enduring legacy saw US military involvement cease in 1973, while all three nations involved adopted communism by 1976. To shed light on the implications of this historical juncture, we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable. The air is dense with the reek of napalm, the land a broken puzzle of trees and men. This is no Vietnam of old. The black pyjamas have been replaced with the khaki of a foreign invader. General Do Chao Tri, the warrior who once united the people, is no more. His name now lives on only in the whispers of old men and the stanzas of forgotten ballads. But his spirit, his spirit lives on in the young men who fight for their freedom. As I speak, a lone gunship flies overhead. Its target? A house in the heart of the village. The villagers flee, screaming for mercy. But there is none to be found. A thunderous roar fills the air. The helicopter is down. The villagers cheer, but their victory is short-lived. The invaders strike back with a vengeance. The village burns. But still, the spirit of General Do Chao Tri lives on. In the heart of every man who fights for his freedom. In the heart of every woman who mourns her fallen sons. And in the heart of every child who dreams of a better tomorrow, this is the Vietnam of today, a land of fire and blood, a land of heroes and villains, a land of freedom and oppression. 
And as the sun sets on this battle-scarred land, the spirit of General Doe Cowtree lives on. Brian Bastable, Newsbang. Edenidan, 1739. In a twist of fate that would make Sherlock Holmes proud, a former schoolmate of notorious English highwayman Dick Turpin has unmasked him by recognising his handwriting. This led to Turpin's trial, execution and the romanticisation of his exploits, including his legendary 200-mile overnight ride from London to York. Handwriting, it seems, is as unique as a snowflake, serving not only to verify documents but also to unveil the identities of elusive criminals. And now, to shed more light on this story, we turn to our crime correspondent, Ken Shit. Ahoy there, scoundrels and degenerates! We're hurtling through time once more, back to the year 1739 when the infamous highwayman, Dick Turpin, had his identity exposed by a bloke who recognised his bloody handwriting. You heard that right, folks. Handwriting. The unique, individual fingerprint of the written word. Turpin was a notorious thief, stealing from travellers on horseback, considering himself above the footpads who robbed on foot. But his days of swiping valuables were numbered when a former schoolmate recognised his scrawl and snitched like a fucking canary. Handwriting analysis is a fascinating field, used to verify documents and data counterfeiting. It can also reveal a person's health, with deteriorating handwriting a symptom of various diseases, like dysgraphia. But back in Turpin's day, it was just another tool in the arsenal of the law, used to bring this dastardly twat to justice. Turpin was found guilty of horse theft and paid the ultimate price, meeting his maker at the gruesome guillotine. But his exploits lived on, romanticised in stories and legends, including the famous 200-mile overnight ride from London to York. This may be the age of the train, but that was the age of the bloody highwayman. So, the next time you think about romanticising the exploits of a dick like Dick Turpin, just remember, behind every dashing outlaw is a sloppy, selfish bastard who couldn't even write a simple note without getting caught. And that's the goddamn truth, folks. Ken Shit signing off. 1854. The year is 1854, and history has been made as the Orange River Convention was signed in Bloemfontein, recognising the independence of the Orange Free State in South Africa. This momentous occasion has led to the formation of the Bayer Republic of the Orange Free State, with Bloemfontein as its capital in the Free State province. The Orange Free State flourished as an independent republic under British suzerainty until it met its end in the Second Boer War in 1902. And the impact of the Orange River Convention continues to ripple through the annals of South African history. Hardeman Pesto has been investigating the lingering effects of this agreement in the modern era. I'm here in Bloemfontein, Martin, where history is being made today. After years of conflict, the British have finally recognized Boer independence in the Orange Free State. There are celebrations in the streets as the Orange River Convention is signed. So this is a momentous occasion for the Boer people, Pesto. They finally have their own republic? That's right, Martin. I spoke to Boer leader Paul Kruger earlier, and he told me this was a dream come true. The Boers can now live free of British rule. And what exactly are the terms of this deal, Pesto? What happens to the gold and diamond mines the Boers have established? Well, Martin, this has been a sticking point in negotiations. But my understanding is the Boers have agreed to give the British 80% of all diamond and gold profits. 80%? That seems extraordinarily high, Pesto. 
Are you sure the Boers agreed to that? Absolutely, Martin. In exchange, the British have agreed to provide military protection to the Boer Republic. I find that very hard to believe, Pesto. The Boers just fought a bloody war for independence. Why would they hand over 80% of their mineral wealth? Well, when you put it that way, Martin, I may have gotten some of the details wrong. Let me go clarify the exact terms with Paul Kruger. Don't bother, Pesto. It's obvious you don't have a clue what's in this treaty. I swear, a train chimp could do a better job reporting. Why do I even send you out there? Can't you get basic facts right? Now, just a minute, Martin. I resent your implication that I'm some sort of idiot. Just because I made one tiny mistake about a few details. One mistake? Oh, no, Pesto. This is just the latest in a very long line of screw-ups. Face it. You're hopeless as a journalist. The only thing you're good for is comic relief. That is outrageous. I've had it with your insults and criticism. Who died and made you the news god? You sit there so smug in your anchor chair while I'm actually out in the field doing the real reporting. Real reporting? Don't make me laugh, Pesto. Why, if I had a banana for every stupid thing you've said and done on air, I could open my own produce stand. Oh yeah, well you can take your bananas and shove them right up your... I'm afraid we're out of time. From Bloemfontein, that was Hardiman Pesto making a monkey out of the news. It ticked. 1778. In a year that would later be known as 2008, a B-2 Spirit stealth bomber met its untimely end on the runway of Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. This unfortunate incident marked the first operational loss of a B-2 bomber, a machine designed to penetrate anti-aircraft defences with its stealth technology. The crash, a costly affair, amounted to an astounding one-cent billion dollars, making it the most expensive loss in US Air Force history. As the sole crash of its kind, this event remains etched in the annals of aviation history. And now, for a closer look at the aftermath of this unparalleled incident, we turn to our correspondent, Melody Wintergreen. Anderson Air Force Base, Guam, where the sky is falling. Quite literally, the B-2 Spirit stealth bomber, a marvel of modern aviation, is preparing for takeoff. Its sleek silhouette against the setting sun is a sight to behold. But this isn't just any flight. This is a journey into the annals of history. The B-2 Spirit, a symbol of American air supremacy, has been an unassailable fortress in the sky since its inception. But today, it's about to face its first operational loss. As the engines roar to life and the bomber taxis down the runway, there's an ominous sense of foreboding in the air. The countdown begins. The B-2 Spirit gathers speed, its wings cutting through the humid Guam air like a hot knife through butter. But something's amiss. A mechanical failure? A pilot error? The exact cause remains shrouded in mystery. Suddenly, there's a loud crash and a plume of smoke billows into the sky. The B-2 Spirit has crashed on the runway shortly after takeoff, a shocking sight that sends ripples of disbelief through Anderson Air Force Base. The crash site is a scene of chaos and confusion. Emergency crews rush to contain the situation while base personnel look on in stunned silence. This isn't just any crash, it's the most expensive in U.S. Air Force history, with an estimated loss of zero dollars, one cent billion. Despite this catastrophic event, there's an eerie calmness that descends upon Anderson Air Force Base as night falls. 
The B2 spirit may have fallen from grace today, but its spirit remains unbroken. As I stand here amidst the wreckage and ruin, it's clear that this day will be etched into history as a stark reminder of the risks and sacrifices inherent in our quest for air supremacy. So as this stealthy bird of prey meets its untimely end, it's not just a crash, it's a fall from grace. Melody Wintergreen, reporting for Newsbang, Anderson Air Force Base, Guam. 1778, the American Revolutionary War was in full swing. George Washington, a man known for his wooden teeth and aversion to cherry trees, led the Continental Army against the British. A key figure in this conflict was Prussian military officer Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben, who transformed the Continental Army at Valley Forge, turning it into a formidable fighting force. And to delve deeper into the world of wooden teeth and cherry tree aversion, we turn to our correspondent Bertrand Spitfire. The American Revolutionary War was a time when Earthlings decided to part ways with their British brethren over taxation and representation issues. Akin to a cosmic family feud, it began in 1775 and lasted until 1783, a span of time that would make even the slowest of glaciers seem hasty. The Continental Army, Earth's equivalent of an intergalactic peacekeeping force, was formed under the command of George Washington, a man known for his wooden teeth and an uncanny ability to chop down cherry trees. His army, however, was far from being the well-oiled machine one might expect from a spacefaring civilization. Enter Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben, a Prussian military officer who arrived at Valley Forge in 1778. He was like a cosmic mechanic, sent to tune up this ramshackle earthling army. With his unique blend of discipline and drill, he transformed the Continental Army from a disorganized rabble into a formidable fighting force. The Battle of Monmouth, a pivotal moment in this terrestrial squabble, saw the newly reformed Continental Army face off against the British forces. Under Washington's leadership and von Steuben's training, they held their ground against the Redcoats, marking a significant turning point in the war. Fast forward to 1783, and the Treaty of Paris was signed, officially recognizing the independence of the United States of America. This treaty was Earth's version of a cosmic peace accord, ending hostilities and allowing both parties to focus on more important matters, like inventing the steam engine and debating the merits of powdered wigs. And so, the American Revolutionary War serves as a reminder that even the most disorganized of forces can triumph with the right leadership and a healthy dose of Prussian discipline. It's a lesson that resonates across galaxies, whether you're commanding a starship or leading a rebellion against an interstellar empire. News Bang, the news for the blind, but not the blinded. A night to see, said 1941. Calamity Prenderville brings us science and technology from yesteryears. 
Tonight, she takes us back to 1941, when Glenn T. Seaborg discovered plutonium at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome back to Science Watch. Tonight we're delving into the world of nuclear chemistry. No, don't panic, we're not building a bomb in the studio. Instead, we're celebrating the discovery of plutonium, an innovation that's as deadly as a cup of tea laced with cyanide. On this day, Glenn T. Seaborg, a scientist at the University of California, Berkeley, discovered plutonium. Now, I know what you're thinking. Plutonium, isn't that the stuff that makes atomic bombs go boom? Well, yes. Imagine this, you're handling a piece of plutonium and suddenly it decides to react with something else. Before you know it, you've got a chain reaction on your hands and you're not in a nuclear power plant, you're in your living room. It's as dangerous as a drunken night out in Bristol where you never know what you're going to wake up next to. But fear not, for this deadly metal has also been used for good. Seaborg's work in discovering transuranium elements, including plutonium, earned him a Nobel Prize in chemistry. So while plutonium might be as deadly as a plate of British food, it's also as brilliant as a British invention, like the spotted dick or the marmite. Berkeley, where Seaborg worked, is a renowned research university. It's known for making entrepreneurs and startup companies, much like a chicken laying eggs. Only instead of chickens, they're producing brilliant minds and groundbreaking discoveries. So let's raise a glass to Glenn T. Seaborg and his discovery of plutonium. It's a testament to the power of science and the dangers of British innovation. And remember, if you're ever handling plutonium, always wear protective gloves unless you want to end up with a chain reaction in your pants. This is Calamity Prenderville, signing off. News Bang, a wake-up call for the willfully blind. 1945. In a remarkable moment of history, Joe Rosenthal captured the indomitable spirit of the US Marine Corps and Navy in his iconic photograph, raising the flag on Iwo Jima. This Pulitzer Prize-winning image immortalized six Marines raising the US flag atop Mount Suribachi during the Battle of Iwo Jima in 1945. The Marine Corps War Memorial, erected in Arlington, Virginia, stands as a poignant tribute to all Marines who have valiantly laid down their lives in service since 1775. To delve deeper into the legacy of this monument, we now turn to our correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, my culture vultures. Smithsonian Moss here, ripping through the fabric of time to bring you a snapshot that's worth more than a thousand words. It's worth a whole damn history book. Picture this. 1945 Iwo Jima, and a bunch of badass Marines are playing King of the Hill with Old Glory on Mount Suribachi. And Joe Rosenthal? That shutterbug snags the money shot that would later become the Marine Corps War Memorial's poster child. So there they are, six Marines, muscles bulging, hearts pounding, raising the star-spangled banner like it's the last call at a 4th of July sale. And this ain't no Instagrammable moment, honey. This is the real deal. They're not doing it for the gram. They're doing it because Uncle Sam asked them to kick some axis. Fast forward to 1954, and boom. We've got the Marine Corps War Memorial, 
a giant stone selfie of that iconic moment, and it's giving everyone the feels. It's like the Oscars for the military, except you don't get a little gold man, you get eternal glory and a prime spot in Arlington, baby. Now let's talk about the Battle of Iwo Jima itself. It was like a season finale of the most intense show you've ever seen. The U.S. Marine Corps and Navy went full beast mode on the Japanese Army, and spoiler alert, they won. But it was no walk in the park, folks. It was more like a crawl through hell with a side of hand grenades. And let's not forget, this memorial isn't just for the flag raisers. It's a shout out to all the Marines who've dropped the mic since 1775. It's like a hall of fame for the fallen. And let me tell you, it's the most exclusive club in Arlington. So there you have it. The tale of the flag, the photo, and the memorial. It's a story of guts, glory, and a photographer who was in the right place at the right time. And remember, when it comes to history, if you didn't snap it, did it even happen? News Bang, taking the pulse of truth and taking no prisoners. And just time to have a look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Russian forces storm into Ukraine. There's a detailed map there with arrows and everything. The Guardian. Ngo Kwang Truong takes back Hugh Citadel. They've got a sepia photo of the man himself. The Telegraph. Yanks yanked at Kasserine Pass. And there's a graph there of something. And the Sun. Rhubarb Bandit strikes again. That's it. On the day that a lorry load of tortoises crashed into a trainload of terrapins, it was a turtle disaster. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.